All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 138, Oswald and Sigebert, The Softer Side of Rule. Now, this is going to be one of those episodes that has a lot of moving parts, and you might want to listen to it twice. Just a heads up. All right, so... Things have gotten pretty exciting. We've had the downfall of Cadwathlin of Gwyneth, and the rise of Oswald of Northumbria, and the return of Christianity to the north, as well as its spread all throughout the south, with only a few holdouts in places like Mercia and the Isle of Wight. So this is a time of enormous change. And as you might imagine, those changes were getting mixed reactions. For example, the death of Cadwathlin by Oswald pleased the people of Northumbria so much that the area where Oswald erected the cross before the Battle of Heaven Field became a holy site that was known for miracles, and even splinters from the cross were said to heal men and livestock. There was even a church erected at the spot believed to be where the cross was placed. So yeah, the battle was a big deal for Northumbria. And it also should give you an indication of how brutal Cadwathlin might have been, because the people really did go nuts for the guy who took him down. And while all of Northumbria seems to have been pretty excited about this event, my guess is that there must have been even bigger celebrations going on in Bernicia. Because after nearly two decades of Deiran domination, now Bernicia was back on top and was ruling over Deira. The center of power was moving back north to Bamber, a fort which was named after Oswald's stepmother, actually. And just as importantly, power was moving away from York. And that must have been a huge relief for the Bernicians, and a moment of intense concern for the Deirans. Don't forget that while we refer to these kingdoms collectively as Northumbria, and over time they will become permanently connected, they had only been ruled over by a single ruler for a few decades. So this was a new concept to them, and they had a long history of being separate kingdoms, with probably their own distinct cultural differences, and they probably also saw themselves as very different peoples. But yeah, Bernicia and the House of Ida was back on top. And so was Christianity. In fact, like we spoke about last episode, Oswald and his Christian allies of Dalriada didn't waste any time working to convert Northumbria. Though their first attempt was less than successful. The bishop that was sent over for this purpose was described in the sources as, quote, austere, end quote. And given that the sources were rather pro-conversion, that smacks of an understatement. And I honestly suspect that he was every bit fire and brimstone that Pope Gregory was cuddly and easygoing. Needless to say, it really didn't work out. So a backup bishop was sent, a man by the name of Aidan. And Aidan was much more in the model of Pope Gregory. Not only that, but he was quite hands-on. He was known for directly engaging with the population and traveling all throughout Northumbria. And this fact also gives us an insight on what sort of man King Oswald was, because Bede tells us that when Aidan was preaching, Oswald acted as his interpreter. And it isn't too surprising that, given his time in exile, Oswald learned Old Irish. But it is surprising that despite his duties of being king, and despite the hostility and danger posed by some of the other kingdoms in Britain, he still made time to assist Aidan in conversion. 
Consequently, with that one-two punch of having a bishop assisted by a conquering king, their conversion efforts were wildly successful in Northumbria. And frankly, according to Bede, King Oswald seemed like a hell of a nice guy, and in many ways, a rather unusual ruler. For example, he was apparently really generous, especially to the poor and to strangers. Bede tells us about how on one particular Easter, Oswald and Aidan were having dinner. I, I don't know where his wife was. But they're having dinner, and they were notified that there was a multitude of poor peasants that were outside and begging for alms. And Oswald, not missing a beat, had all his food given to the people who were gathering outside, and even had his silver dish broken up and distributed to them. See? Super nice guy. And Aidan apparently agreed, because we're told that after that event, he grabbed Oswald's right hand and said, quote, May this hand never perish, end quote. And according to Bede, it didn't. Even after Oswald's death, Bede says that the hand didn't decay, which is a common sign of sainthood for the period. And it won't surprise you to find out that, though they didn't know it at the time, they were both destined to become saints. And they really seemed like a dynamite pair, so I guess they earned it. So good for them. Anyway, at around the same time, as I mentioned last week, Lindisfarne was granted to Aidan, and he founded his monastery there. So things were progressing well for the church, and frankly, it was a smart move by King Oswald, and maybe also a very pious move, because Lindisfarne was close to Bamber, which was Oswald's capital. So it kept the head of Northumbrian Christianity close to Oswald, which was both useful to him, but also enabled him to stay close to his religious council, and it made it easier for him to assist Aidan in conversion. All in all, this move really seems to have been a win-win for Oswald. And so yeah, everything was coming up Oswald when it came to religious matters. Politically, though, it looks like things weren't all wine and roses. In fact, it looks like Oswald's reign might have been marred by war right from the start. According to the Annals of Tigernach, the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms ganged up on Oswald early in his reign, but their war failed. Though interestingly, none of the other sources mention this. So we're forced to ask ourselves, is this a misunderstanding of the events that were occurring in the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms? After all, it's being written down by an Irish scribe, so they might not have known exactly what was going on. Or, did this war actually occur, but the Anglo-Saxons didn't want to record it because maybe it was a bit shameful or they thought it wasn't worth recording for some reason? So maybe Oswald was fighting with his neighbors, or maybe early on he wasn't. But what we can be pretty sure of is that Mercia looks like it was a bit of a headache for Oswald. After all, Oswald had won his kingdom by killing their ally, Cadwathlin. So, that's a bit awkward. However, it doesn't look like things immediately turned to violence between the two kingdoms. At most, it might have just been a sort of cold malevolence coming out of Oswald's southern neighbor. But I would like to look a little bit more into what was going on there. And for the sake of completion, since we are talking about Mercia now, I should point out that it doesn't look like Penda ruled Mercia alone. His brother, Eowa, is also mentioned as one of the kings of Mercia. However, there really isn't too much to say about Eowa. When it comes down to it, it looks like Penda was the heavyweight. And here's how much attention and respect that he commanded by both his friends and his enemies. 
even Bede, who hated Penda for his paganism and for his success in battle, described him as, quote, a man exceptionally gifted as a warrior, end quote. Bede said that. That would be like Gildas saying something nice about, well, anyone. So it's shocking, and that gives you a sense of exactly how proficient a warrior Penda was. He managed to get Bede to say something nice about him, despite the fact that he was a dirty, rotten heathen. And the fact is, Penda seems to have been a pretty savvy leader in general. And so when we look at what was going on with Mercia and Oswald, we have to take that into account. And the fact remains that the reason for the lack of violence between the two kingdoms initially might have been because Penda was biding his time and building his strength before directly challenging the northern king. And actually, some have argued that Ainfrith, do you remember him? That was the last son of Edwin who was captured and kept as a prisoner by Penda. Well, some have argued that maybe Penda had him killed in order to keep Oswald happy and to keep the peace, at least for a while. And if Oswald was really powerful, that was probably the right call. And it does look like he was really powerful. So we're in a situation where we've got to ask ourselves, what was Penda to do? Now that he was king, he needed to do something. I mean, the thing is that Mercia is a very beautiful area. And back then, it would have been incredibly picturesque with rolling hills and patches of woods and everything you could want. Well, everything except for a major trade route that was linked directly to the continent. Northumbria, East Anglia, Kent, and most of the South all had access to continental trade with the Franks, with Scandinavia, and even beyond. But Mercia was landlocked. They were stuck with either trading through their Anglo-Saxon neighbors or through the Welsh. And that was it. So that probably put a hamper on Mercia's GDP, for lack of a better term. And if Oswald was throwing around his weight and demanding tribute from Mercia... Where would the tribute come from? And even if Oswald was kind and didn't ask for tribute, Penda still needed something. I mean, wouldn't his warbands and thanes expect gifts and rewards for their loyal service? Grain, ale, and food rent is great and all, but a king is a giver of rings, not a giver of grain. And like we talked about all those months ago in the Warfare episodes, while some kingdoms kept their supporters happy with gifts acquired through trade, others, without access to such advantages, sometimes had to resort to other methods. My impression is that Penda, well... Yeah, something like that. And besides, Penda was clearly ambitious. And Edwin's power had been broken, and Oswald was still establishing his own dominion. So now was the time to strike. And though Penda doesn't seem to have wanted to directly challenge Oswald, he didn't seem to have any issue with pressing his advantage with the other kingdoms. Kingdoms like East Anglia. And besides, East Anglia was actually a pretty good target. I mean, it was much more in Kent's pocket than Northumbria's. So if he attacked there, that wouldn't bother Oswald too much, right? And as an extra motivating factor, Mercia was neighboring with the Middle Angles. And while East Anglia ruled over them, Penda apparently felt that they would fit in much better with Mercia. Unfortunately, East Anglia doesn't seem to have agreed with Penda's assessment. 
They were quite happy with the middle angles and didn't want to hand them over. Thank you very much. And the end result of all of this is that at about 635 or 636, probably, but some have argued that it might have even been in the 640s. So sometime around there, Penda marched on the recently converted East Anglian territories. And seriously, that poor kingdom just couldn't catch a break. Every time something happened regarding religion, it seems like they were rewarded with a strong kick in the teeth. I really feel bad for those guys. And we should probably talk about them. So, East Anglia. What was going on there? And I'm afraid I'm just going to have to double back briefly because this story is so convoluted, it's really the only way to handle it. So you probably remember that Raidwald's son had converted to Christianity, and he was killed by a pagan by the name of Rickbert, who was then killed by another son of Raidwald, who was every bit the warrior that his father was. And as a fun twist, that son had spent some time exiled in Francia, and while he was there, he converted to Christianity. So Christianity was back on top, sort of. And this son's name was Sigebert. And now, having returned from exile like a conquering hero, he was king. But Sigebert was smart, or at least he was smarter than his brother, and he recognized how dangerous his faith was. After all, even the throne failed to save the life of his brother. So it looks like he decided to throw the people a bone to keep them happy, and decided to have two kings of East Anglia, one Christian, him, and one pagan, a guy by the name of Egric. Egric? I can hear you saying? Yeah, Egric. And we aren't entirely sure about who this guy was. We are pretty sure that Egric was part of the ruling dynasty, but we don't know how he linked up with that. We don't know who his parents were. We know very little, frankly. But the end result was that Sigebert was now co-ruling with a mysterious pagan member of the dynasty. And that was a clever move. And joint rule was nothing too shocking. We've seen that in Kent and a variety of other kingdoms by now, and we're going to continue to see it, in fact. But much like the parentage of Ekrik, we don't have a lot of details, so we don't know the specific domains that each king ruled over. But it has been speculated that maybe they arranged it where one of them was ruling over roughly Norfolk and the other held roughly Suffolk. Something like that. Anyway, with that joint rule in place... His religious flank was somewhat protected, so King Sigebert seems like he was free to pursue his own goals. And as a consequence, pretty soon, Canterbury sent St. Felix to assist in conversion, and they established the bishopric of East Anglia with Sigebert's help. And this, of course, reinforced their Kentish ties. Sigebert also granted Burr Castle to St. Felix, who established a monastery there that was an interesting blend between the styles of the Irish Church and Canterbury. And Sigebert was also influenced by his time in Francia in the area of education, because in addition to his work with the church, he also established a school that would teach boys how to read and write Latin. So for a 7th century king, this guy sounds pretty great, doesn't he? I mean, he's pushing literacy. And you might be thinking that East Anglia has everything going for it at this point. Well, here's the thing. It seems like he was genuinely pious, because eventually he had a monastery built and abdicated to Egric and retired to live a monastic life. 
And tradition says that the monastery that he built and retreated to was Bury St. Edmund's. But that isn't confirmed. It is confirmed, though, that he stepped down, which is a real bummer when you have a good king and then all of a sudden he's like, all right, peace, I'm out. But it is possible that there were other things in play with this move that went beyond piety. East Anglia wasn't entirely Christian. After all, King Egric was still pagan. And it was only a few years ago that they executed Sigebert's brother, probably for his Christianity. So, it's also possible that he was a bit motivated to get out of politics for, well, rather temporal reasons. But the end result is that by the time Penda marched on East Anglia, it was once again being ruled by a single king, King Egric. And while Sigebert had been quite successful on the battlefield, he might have felt it was providence that he retired to his monastery because this Penda guy was pretty scary. And he wasn't alone. He had marshaled an impressive force of veteran warriors. His war bands were experienced, bloodied, and recently victorious. Mighty Edwin had fallen to these men. And now East Anglia was expected to face them alone? No God. Well, we don't know what Egric was thinking about this, but I suspect he was probably quite concerned. But hey, there's an upside. Because Penda's attack wasn't a complete surprise. We can surmise that because Egric had enough time to be able to gather his war bands. And they weren't a small number. He had a pretty big army. Not as big as Penda's, but it was still pretty sizable. However, in addition to their numeric disadvantage, they also were just not as experienced as Penda's men. And to make matters worse, it looks like confidence in their king was also an issue. Because rather than immediately marching under Egric's control, warriors were sent to Sigebert, and they begged him to come out from his monastery and lead the troops. The thought was that while they had fewer men than the Mercians, perhaps with mighty Sigebert leading them, who had such an impressive reputation on the battlefield, it would hearten the Werons, and they would find victory in the field. But the problem is that Sigebert was disinterested. He had renounced everything worldly when he took his vows, and now he was only interested in spiritual matters. And on the one hand, good for him. He took a vow and he meant it. He really believed, and he was going to live according to his beliefs. And I respect that. On the other hand, damn it, Siggy, your people need you. This is no time to get caught up in religious matters. The Mercians are on their way and are threatening enough that the pagans and Christians are teaming up in order to deal with them. And the fact that you would refuse, especially since your duty is to the people, after all, you were king, well, it's just kind of shameful. Get out there and fight, and then just beg forgiveness of your god later. Sometimes you just gotta do what you gotta do. But all Sigebert wanted to do was stay in his monastery. And maybe he was just tired. Maybe he just needed some motivation. Maybe if someone would just help him find his way to the battlefield, nature would take its course. And that seems to be exactly what the East Anglians thought when they were confronted by the piety and pacifism of their former war leader. And so he was dragged along with the Werons. And you can almost imagine the scene at the battlefield. On the one hand, you have the Mercians, experienced, ruthless, and deadly. 
under the command of a single battle-tested war leader, Penda. And on the other side was a smaller, untested force of warriors who were having some sort of drama. It looked like there was a king. He certainly was dressed like one, resplendent in his armor and regalia. But quite a lot of men weren't paying attention to him. Rather, they were paying a lot of attention to a monk. And it seems like they had a growing sense of consternation as they approached him with armor and weapons, and he kept waving them away. You can imagine that Penda might have been wondering what the hell they were so focused on, and why they kept on going to this strange holy man who was only armed with a staff. Maybe it looked ridiculous to him. Or maybe this person looked like someone who might be able to wield magic on the battlefield. And if it was the latter, you could imagine that, despite the fear of approaching him, Penda might have wanted to kill him as soon as possible. So, the battle played out pretty much exactly as you would assume it would, with Penda and his superior forces overwhelming the East Anglians, killing large numbers of them, including King Egric and Sigebert. The remainder of the East Anglian forces were utterly scattered, and Penda was victorious. And while the Wuffingas had other branches, the line of Raidwald was wiped out. Sigebert had been martyred, and East Anglia was now dominated by Mercia. And their troubles were only beginning. Because this is basically the starter pistol that opened up a couple centuries where the purpose of East Anglian kings appears to have been to merely assist the church and be victimized by the Mercians and others. To rule East Anglia was a pretty rough job, and it would be for quite a while now. And following Penda's victory, it isn't clear how long Mercia directly controlled the kingdom. But eventually, East Anglia was allowed to have their own king, and it was a member from the royal dynasty, a man by the name of Anna. But from the look of things, despite his lineage, he was intended to be little more than a client king. And as for the Middle Angles, who were probably the excuse for the war, they were now under the direct control of Mercia. And this development must have been quite worrying for King Oswald of Northumbria. It was a direct challenge to any plans to reestablish the Northumbrian hegemony that Edwin had built. And it placed Mercia as a sizable roadblock to Oswald's ambitions. Now there was a huge chunk, right in the middle of what would become England, that was unified under an effective war leader and didn't appear to be too interested in Oswald's religion nor his rule. But the fact was that Oswald was a Bretwalda, the fifth to date. And we're told, unsurprisingly, that he was the most powerful king in Britain as well. In fact, Adamnon said he was, quote, ordained by God as emperor of all Britain, end quote. But, you know, Adamnon kind of had a dog in that fight, and just as language betrays where his bias was coming from. However, Oswald does seem to have been generally recognized as an overking over at least some of the heptarchy. And, as would be particularly important to Mercia and East Anglia, since they were in the neighborhood, we can be relatively sure that he, rather than Mercia, ruled the border kingdom of Lindsay. And we can say that because after Oswald died, there were efforts to move his bones there, and the monks initially balked because they were irritated over his rule. So yeah, at some point, Lindsay must have bent the knee to Northumbria. And frankly, 
Things were getting tense with Northumbria's hegemony butting right up against Mercia's growing power base. And it looks like, despite the block controlled by Penda and the possible early scuffle between the southern kingdoms and Northumbria, things between Oswald and the West Saxons were quite positive. So positive, in fact, that he sponsored the baptism of King Chinegils of the West Saxons, and he even married Chinegils' daughter, who might have been named Chinaburga. And it's this woman who might have been the mother of Oswald's only son, Ethelwald. But that isn't entirely clear. He might have been born to another woman. I mean, after all, Oswald was a grown man by the time he became king and got into this marriage. And so this might have just been a political marriage, and it's possible that there was an earlier marriage from his time in exile. But yeah, regardless of the parentage of Ethelwald, despite Penda's efforts and the geographical roadblock that he had created, Oswald was still making gains through diplomacy in the South. However, as is the way with a lot in this period, the particulars of who owed him fealty and who didn't gets a little messy. For example, we're told in the Irish annals that in 638, Godothan fell. And this might have been the result of Oswald conquering his neighbors to the north. And we can suspect that it was him because just over a decade later, we have references to Northumbria controlling the region. So this might have been when that domination started. And Bede does tell us that Oswald dominated all the kingdoms of Britain, like the entire island. However, and you knew a however was coming. However, he also told us that it was his brother who eventually got the Picts and Scots to give tribute, which would indicate that Oswald didn't dominate all the kingdoms of the island. So we have contradictions within the same source even. And there do seem to have been regions of the island that he just left entirely alone. So who knows? What we can be sure of, though, is that Oswald followed in the footsteps of his father and his father's killer, and he was rebuilding the Northumbrian-led hegemony that fell apart upon Edwin's death. Though there was a distinct difference in how Oswald pursued this ambition. Oswald, unlike Edwin, doesn't seem to have appeared to have messed around with North Wales. Now, on the surface, that's pretty surprising, after all, given how Northumbria suffered under Cabwathlin, many of the people might have been looking for some sort of revenge. But on the other hand, it's possible that maybe after being burned by that particular move once before, they decided that they really didn't want to mess around with Gwyneth again. It's also possible that Oswald was simply more friendly to the Celtic kingdoms than his predecessor. Now, both he and Edwin spent time as exiles in the Celtic West, but I wonder if Oswald assimilated a bit more easily than Edwin, given the fact that Oswald could speak Old Irish, adopted their religion, and even brought their missionaries into his kingdom, which would cause a lasting shift in the way Christianity was practiced in the North. So maybe he was just a bit more of a backpacker and less of a warmonger. It's hard to say because our sources are limited. And frankly, Bede treats Oswald as something like a personal hero, and you can pretty clearly see his personal bias at play here. And if I was to be honest with you, my bias is at play as well, because I really do like diplomatic leaders more than blood-soaked warriors. So I'm speaking about him in somewhat glowing terms, and so does Bede. But I bet not everyone would have felt the same way about him. This is a time where kings were still expected to be effective warriors. So being a good diplomat 
might only bestow so much worth in the feasting halls. He would also be expected to effectively lead the troops. On the other hand, Oswald was an effective warrior when he had to fight. He just seems to have sought diplomatic means as well. So it really is hard to weigh him as a ruler, and it really comes down to how you view rulers and the duties that kings hold. For example, there are some scholars who prefer kings in the uncompromising warrior model who have gone so far as to describe him as insipid. And while Bede and I don't always see eye to eye, he and I are both dirty hippies on this one and think Oswald is pretty cool. So I thought it would be a good idea to point out the spin that our primary source, Bede, puts on the story and the bias that your nerdy storyteller, me, has. But for all the rose-colored glasses that we get from Bede, there are hints that Oswald was still a descendant of Ida and a son of Aethelfrith. And maybe, like his father, he had ice water running through his veins. I mean, Aethelfrith was killed in the court of Penda, quite possibly to appease Oswald. The infant son and grandson of Edwin were sent to Francia out of fear for their lives. And even after Oswald was dead, the monks of Lindsay didn't want anything to do with his bones because of their experience being dominated by him and his kingdom. So there are hints that this guy had more to him than just being diplomatic, generous, and pious. So let this be another reminder to you. Always remember to take your sources into account when learning about this stuff. Bede, Gildas, the Chronicles, me, all of it. No one is above bias. All we can try and do is make our own biases clear. But, as I said, Oswald does seem to have been more friendly to the Celtic West than Edwin. For example, Oswald's younger brother, Oswiu, was married at around this point in the story to a woman by the name of Remouth, and she was the granddaughter of Rune. Now, Rune might sound familiar because I've mentioned him before in earlier episodes. He was the guy that the Historia says baptized Edwin. Though, as we talked about in that episode, I don't buy it. And I believe the other sources that say it was Paulinus. Anyway, in addition to that moment of fame, Rune was also the son of Urien of Regid. Probably. And yeah, that's the same Urien who bitterly fought against Bernicia and also against the House of Ida. So I guess things must have changed over the generations, because now it looks like Urien's great-granddaughter was marrying into the royal family of Bernicia. So, maybe Oswald was more pro-Celtic West, and that openness led to political connections that went both ways. And again, we have another instance of where he was engaging in diplomacy. And all of this brings us back to the issue of North Wales. Why didn't he go into Gwyneth and take it? Why did he use marriage to probably get Regid support rather than fight them like his ancestors had done? Well, frankly, it's hard to read motivations into these people when we have so little to go on. But I do find it interesting that Oswald and Edwin handled their kingdom in such wildly different ways, despite similar stories. And Oswald was certainly an interesting person, and he seems to have had many sides, despite the cuddly view that Bede and yours truly have given you. So I'll leave it up to you to decide why you think he might have given Gwyneth a pass. But my impression of Oswald at this point is that he was looking to build a hegemony, but wasn't necessarily looking for war. 
While there were circumstances, like with Gadothan, where war did break out, he seems to have actively avoided outbreaks of violence with the Celtic West, and often seems to have sought a more diplomatic approach. And given the bad blood with North Wales, diplomacy probably wasn't going to work with them, so my guess is that he decided to leave it the hell alone. But North Wales wasn't the only enemy of Northumbria that continued to be a worry for Oswald. Not too long ago, Mercia was a thorn in the side of Edwin. And once again, this scrappy middling kingdom was looking to cause trouble. Okay, I have a listener question. Mike asks, I got sucked into watching the movie Gladiator for the gazillionth time and got to thinking, is there evidence in Britain of Colosseum-like structures where games might have taken place? Yeah, actually, there is. In fact, there's one that was found in London, just under the Guild Hall. You can actually go visit there and see the outline of it in the stones of Guild Hall Park. When you're there, just look for the large circle of dark stones, and that's where the arena once stood. Pretty exciting stuff. All right, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and we have all kinds of different ways you can get involved, and we have links to all of those things at our site, thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And this show is member-supported. Without members, it wouldn't be possible. And if you're interested in becoming a member, you can do so over at the site. It costs about the same as a latte per month, and it does a lot to help us keep this going. So if you're interested, we'd really appreciate the support. And as always, thanks for listening. 